0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Cameron Mitchell. He is the author of a new book about his career in the restaurant industry, and he also happens to be uh, the founder and CEO and soon-to-be chairman of Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group. I found our conversation quite fascinating. If you're interested in... The restaurant industry and what it's like to develop a restaurant concept and expand it from one restaurant to many across the country. Uh, They have 5,000 employees and their restaurants of a variety of different names, probably best known as Ocean Prime, um, generate over $300 million a year in revenue. Uh, You'll find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, My conversation with Cameron Mitchell. My special guest today is Cameron Mitchell. He is the founder of the Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group, now 25 years old and employing 5,000 people in 60 restaurants across the country. Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group generates over $300 million in annual sales. Uh, Mr. Mitchell was named Entrepreneur of the Year by Ernst & Young, as well as Small Business Person of the Year by the U.S. SBA. He was also named to 50 New Tastemakers by the nation's Restaurant News magazine, and he is the author, most recently, of Yes is the Answer, How Faith in People and a Culture of Hospitality Built a Modern American Restaurant Company. Cameron Mitchell, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's let's discuss uh, a little bit about your background. You didn't seem when you were growing up like somebody who was going to find his way into a chef's toque. How did you get interested in restaurants and cooking? It doesn't appear this was something you were very passionate about as a child.
1: No, I. Um, it depends on how far back you want to go, but I, I had a troubled childhood and a troubled youth and struggled in high school and uh, ran away from high, uh, home and dropped out of high school when I was fifteen and uh, my folks were divorced and my mom didn't have any money and so when I came back uh, would have been my junior year, uh, I didn't have any money for lunch money she couldn't give me lunch money and I needed to work I needed to get a job and so. I got a job in 1980s a local a local steakhouse, uh, washing dishes for two sixty five an hour, and did that and bus tables and prepped a little bit uh, through my junior and senior year in high school, and that's how I found my entree into the restaurant business.
0: So, so let's talk about that because you describe in your book sort of being a terrible employee, mm-hmm. constantly being mm-hmm. late. Mm-hmm. You were suspended. You were put mm-hmm. on thirty mm-hmm. days' notice, mm-hmm. and you describe an epiphany. Mm-hmm where you realized, hey, this restaurant thing is really interesting. Uh, what Explain what that moment was like and, and how it changed your whole life.
1: Well, I was uh, just turned 19 at the time. I'd been out of high school for about a year, and I was living at home with mom, working for beer money, uh, working for the man, uh, not uh, a boy but not yet a man, and mm-hmm. um, just really squandering. And um, I was working uh, two jobs in the restaurant business and – I had uh, trouble getting to work on time in the morning, and uh, I got put on thir- uh, three-day suspension and 30 days probation. Mm-hmm. So midway through that probationary period, and I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do in my life, and then mm-hmm. I just have been struggling. And so I didn't want to go right off to college because I didn't want to go to college not knowing what I wanted to do. So um, I-, I was suspended for three days, put on 30 days probation, and during the middle of that probationary period, it was a Friday afternoon. And I was, uh, during shift change, and I was working a.m. cook that day and a p.m. host at the same restaurant. Double shift. Yes, and that restaurant was a very busy restaurant. would probably do 1,000 people that day between lunch and dinner. And um, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, shift change, the, resta- the, the restaurant's half full, the bar's packed with happy hour, uh, the a.m. shift is trying to leave, the p.m. shift's trying to come on, the managers are barking orders, and it's kind of pandemonium in the kitchen. And time froze. I looked across the line in the kitchen, and I said, I absolutely love this. This is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to be in the restaurant business. So I worked my double shift, and I went home that night, and I wrote out my goals. I said I was going to go to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. I had heard about that. I'm 19 years old, and I I was going to graduate. I was going to become executive chef by the time I was 23, general manager at 24, uh, regional manager at 26, vice president of operations at 30, and president of a restaurant company by the time I was 35. Those are are ambitious goals. Yeah, and I uh, woke my mom up at one in the morning, so I know what I want to do with myself the rest of my life, and she was quite relieved, needless to say. I I got up the next morning and now I was working for my, I did a complete 180 degree turn. I was working for myself, mm-hmm. for my future, uh, for my career. I had the best attitude in the kitchen. I was the hardest working guy in the kitchen. And I the day before, I was the laziest guy in the kitchen, lousy attitude, and working for the man and working for beer money. So now you are a man. 180 degree <laughs> change. Yes, I guess so.
0: So for people <clears throat> who may not have ever worked in a kitchen, mm-hmm. and I was a waiter and a mm-hmm. short order cook mm-hmm. in college. There's really, especially during a rush, there's a tremendous amount of energy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and sort of a controlled chaos. Is that exactly. a, way that's a great way to describe it? That's
1: a great way to describe and,
0: it. And for people who haven't experienced it, I could see how there's a tremendous lure there because it's always different every day and there's so much stuff going on. Right. What was it about that moment in time that had you flip from being the bum in the uh, kitchen to the hardest working guy in the building?
1: Well, I just needed to find my way. I needed to have my goal, and that was the key difference. That was totally the key difference. And once I and I've been goal oriented ever since. I still have on my desk today my fourth quarter goals for my career mm-hmm. uh, for the next fifteen years. So um, I've been a goal setter since day one, and and it's worked well for me, and I'm still doing it today.
0: So uh, the Culinary Institute of America is mm-hmm. uh, described has been described as the Harvard of food prep. You had written. There are three kinds of CIA students, those gunning to be chefs, those who want to be in the restaurant business, and those who were lost. Mm -hmm. How did you know that you didn't want to be a chef but wanted to actually be in the restaurant business?
1: Well, it goes back to my goals. I knew I wanted to be president of a restaurant company, and I said to myself— At 19. Yeah, so I said if I— if I'm going to be president of a restaurant company, I better know about food. And I was already working in the kitchen, but I didn't know anything about food. So right. I said, I'm going to go to the CIA and learn about food. So and
0: you, they turn you into a chef even if you yes, don't want to be a yes. chef. And even I was, if you want to be in the management side, you they still teach you how to cook.
1: Oh, exactly. Exactly. And those fundamentals and those basics I still uh, work with today and have been formed uh, the base, uh, for my knowledge, to build my career from.
0: Let's discuss a little bit the process you go through in quote-unquote finding great people. A lot of executives say that's the most challenging thing they do is hiring, mm-hmm. and sometimes you never know who's going to turn out to be great or not. You think you came up with a, uh, a solution. Tell us about it.
1: The two uh, questions I get asked thousands of times is, where do, you, where do you get such great people, and how do you deliver such great service? And I tell people the answer is the same to essentially both questions. We get the same people everybody else gets. I actually don't think it's that hard to get great people because uh, I think everybody, I operate on the premise almost that everybody's great. We mm-hmm. just treat people great and we inspire people to grow and learn and uh, and they, we care about them tremendously and they in turn care about us and they want to deliver great service and they get excited about our company and they want to build their career and it's uh, such a positive momentum that uh, permeates the entire organization. So
0: you don't hire great people, you hire people and allow them to become great. Correct. That's
1: exactly right.
0: That seems like that's a challenge to do. How do you take a regular person in jobs that could be long, tiring, stressful, and make sure that those folks always have a good attitude and always are, you know, uh, uh, striving for mm-hmm. that the sort of greatness you describe?
1: Well, I think those long, hard hours, not having a great attitude is a standard... Uh, Uh, image of the restaurant business, if Mm -hmm. you will. But in our company, it's not quite the same. Our company, uh, our number one value is our associates come first. I I tell people that our company is built by its people for its people. We're not built for our investors. We're not built for me. We're built for our people.
0: You describe in your book, a book that you found very influential, which was, the customer comes second, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. somewhat counterintuitive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and very much not how the usual management books discuss mm-hmm. treating customers. Explain what the customer comes second actually means to your corporate culture.
1: Well, we've all heard of the customer comes first. That's preached almost everywhere. And uh, here I am as CEO of a restaurant company, uh, I would say our customers do not come first. Our associates come first. I'm even Brazen enough to say we don't even have a direct relationship with our customers. Uh, We have a direct relationship with the people we work with day in and day out. Our customers, who I call guests, come to see us once a week, once a month, once a year, sometimes once and never, God forbid. But uh, uh, we have the direct relationship with our people. So I look, I describe it as a triangular relationship. We take care of our people. Our people take care of our guests. And our guests take care of our company. Mm -hmm. So that's how we do it.
0: So, obviously, corporate culture is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. How do you go about building a corporate culture that encourages staff members to try to get to yes? How do you ingrain that into the philosophy of a restaurant company?
1: Well, it starts with us. You know, um, we say yes to our people all the time, and they know that. And so, uh, yes is the answer what's the question permeates every single corner of our organization and it might be as simple as uh, a manager talking with some friends and hey we're gonna go out of town in three weeks uh, for a long weekend you want to go and he doesn't say or she does not say I have to ask my boss they say yes I can go no problem and then they go tell their boss they're going to be away for a weekend coming up here and so uh, that freedom and that belief that it's it's good for me, it's good for you. And so our whole team operates on that.
0: How, so my office, we don't have a vacation schedule. We don't have fixed hours. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we, we initially, when it was just a handful of us, called it big boy rules. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what your work is? Come in, do your work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're done at 3 and you want to go home at 3, who cares? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we assume you're not going to be abusive on vacations. Mm-hmm. But one can imagine when we're 25 people, you're thousands of Mm -hmm, people. mm -hmm. How do you make sure that people aren't taking advantage Mm -hmm. or being abusive of that?
1: Well, our culture in many ways uh, uh, deals with that. But in particular, I've always led the organization believing we lead the organization for 98%, 99% of the people that are good, not the 1% or 2% of the people that are bad. And so, yes, uh, do we have people that take advantage of us sometimes? Yes, we do. But we don't let that affect the positive work environment that we have and a great company culture that we have for the other 99% of our people to enjoy.
0: And and you're one of the executives who feels that your job is to help everybody else Correct. do their jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to throw another quote at you. Uh, Instead of worrying so much about how I did my job, I switched my energy to helping other people do their jobs. This mm-hmm. was another epiphany moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You describe, tell us about what, triggered that that reversal and and how has it uh helped you in business uh, since then
1: well it changed my life uh one day as a young general manager um i got i was working my tail off 80 90 hours a week and i thought how successful the restaurant would be was uh, how well i did my job and how hard i worked and uh, my boss called me into his office and uh, said so he just had a clandestine meeting with eight servers who were going to have mutiny on the bounty and <laughs> either I go or they go and he said listen he's going to stay but I want you to stay and let me talk to him and so he told me about this meeting and I was shocked. I thought I was doing a great job and, I, and but I wasn't even focused on the people. I wasn't even worried about the people. I was running around following them around the restaurant making sure they were doing their job right etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, with a fine tooth comb and driving them nuts basically so I uh, said to him, I said, I'll change my attitude, I'll change my way. And I read several books, and I thought, and I reflected, and I uh, created uh, this leadership style of working uh, through the people. We are here to support our people. And, and then when I realized it's not how well I do my job, it's how well everybody else does their job is what's important. I And all my focus was on supporting all of my fellow associates that worked in that restaurant and the whole thing changed on its, on a dime.
0: So how do you spot talents? When you're when you're looking to bring on an executive chef mm-hmm. or even even a sous chef or, or someone at the front of the restaurant, mm-hmm. a host or hostess or a manager, what are you looking for in that process? Mm-hmm. Or do you think you could just pretty much take anybody? And mold them into that role
1: we pretty much believe we can take about anybody so we don't really do much outside hiring 90 percent of our people come in from the hourly associate ranks and prove themselves at that point and and get promoted and grow with our company not to say we don't outside hire but very rarely I don't want people to work and build their careers with a company and have us outside hire someone on top of them after they've worked for the company for years. So, uh, talent uh, really identifies itself through uh, their job performance as we move along.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the book you wrote. Yes is the answer. And I have to start with the milkshake story Mm because it's got a little bit of five easy pieces to it, a little Jack Mm -hmm. Nicholson, Mm -hmm. and then a little twist ending. You and your wife are out with the family mm-hmm. at a restaurant, and you obviously can look at all the items on the menu. And if they have bread and they have cheese, you should be able to get a grilled cheese. I couldn't agree except more. Except some places say no. Right. Tell us about that, that moment, which I found uh, amusing. And While
1: boring. we're dating ourselves, we know Jack Nicholson in Five Easy Pieces. Right. <laughs> so I,
0: I, it's the film buffs who are younger will certainly. Know of the of, of the movie, right? And the famous chicken salad scene. You can find that on YouTube if you're not familiar with the book of the movie. But right. you're at you're at
1: the restaurant. What happens? So I wanted a grilled cheese sandwich. I have my four year old, my two year old with me, my m- wife, and my mother and father in law, and. So I want to get a grilled cheese for my four-year-old son. And uh, the gal says, we don't have grilled cheese. I said, oh, okay. So I end up ordering a club sandwich, hold the turkey, ham, lettuce, tomato, bacon. So they there. had the bread, they right. had the cheese, right, exactly. and they had
0: the grill. How hard is and that And I tonight? said, if
1: you can saute this on both sides, that'd be fabulous. So <laughs> I get that Henson done. And some grilled cheese turkey right, club. Right, right. <laughs> so then I asked her for a chocolate milkshake for my son. And she goes, well, all we have is a Haagen-Dazs milkshake. It's like a quart of soft whipped ice cream. It's huge. It's way too big for your son. We just can't do it. And I said, okay. I said, can I, will you ask your manager? So she goes to ask her manager. I see the manager shake her head no. She comes back, says we can't do it. I said, okay, well, uh, can you have your manager come over to see me? And my wife starts to kick me under the table. Don't do this. And I said, I just want to know why.
0: Can I assume your wife has seen this movie before? (laughs) I mean, this is not the first time (laughs) you've experienced what should be a yes be right. a no, and you're right. just you're just miffed by the whole process. Exactly,
1: and I want to know why. So uh, she comes over and she says, "Well, the uh, thing is, we pre-portion our ice cream, and we give your son a little bit of ice cream. What are we going to do with the rest? Now, I've been in restaurant business at this point in time twenty plus years. I know no one's in back pre-portioning right. the ice cream, and I, I say, okay. I said, "Well, will you can you make a chocolate milk for me?" She now she's great hospitality. Absolutely, I'll get you a chocolate milk, and starts to turn away. I said, hmm. Hold on a second. She had uh, hot, two hot desserts on the menu. It said uh, hot carrot, warm carrot cake, and and chocolate brownie dessert. And it said a la mode 2 I said, what's a la mode mean? She goes, well, that's a scoop of ice cream. I said, perfect. Can I get an order of a la mode to go with my chocolate milk? And she said, yes, but she chastised me. She said, this is okay, sir, but it'll be expensive. And she was visibly upset with it. me and my but, wife. By the way, while visible, you're so, a la
0: this, hey, run the
1: whole thing through the blender. Right, and right. now it's that milkshake exactly. I wanted in the first exactly. place. Exactly. So I get the milkshake. And a couple weeks later, I'm the keynote speaker at a 500 person luncheon for our local business magazine, I'm telling this story. How the answer is yes. What's the question? Or yes is the answer. What's the question? However way you want to phrase it, um, and I tell the story. And so about two weeks later, a gal comes up to me on the street. She said, "My husband saw you speak at the Hyatt. Thought you did a great job, and want to take you up on your milkshake story." And so he went into one of your restaurants to the bar in order to try to order a chocolate milkshake, and they said no. <laughs> And it's like she punched me right in the stomach, right there in the street. And I I went into our Monday morning executive committee meeting, fired up and said, you know, uh, our yes is the answer. What's the question is not permeating our organization well enough. We need to correct this. And so we started to brainstorm and we started, well, let's tell that story. Let's make a video of that story. And uh, let's do milkshake pens. Let's make milkshake the icon of hospitality and CMR, all great stuff. And, finally, and people have little milkshake yeah, got one on right now. And,
0: and and basically it says, if someone asks for something, a milkshake or otherwise, yeah, yeah. if you could deliver it, yes
1: why would you? Yes is the answer, you? exactly. So I, uh, uh, and every new associate that starts with the company goes through a four-hour orientation into the company culture and philosophy and values and so forth. And we make every new associate that starts with the company a chocolate milkshake that day. And we take it a lot further than that. We make thousands of chocolate milkshakes every year. We start every major meeting, every staff meeting with a milkshake toast to everybody uh, celebrating great people delivering genuine hospitality. And yes is the answer. What's the question?
0: (laughs) So how do you, how do you make sure that the customer experience is consistent across all of those different locations? Different suppliers, different regions, different managers, different mm-hmm. staff members. Mm-hmm. If I walk into a Cameron Mitchell restaurant here, there, or elsewhere, mm-hmm. am I going to get the same hospitality in the same meal or is it going to vary widely?
1: Alberta, uh, you're going to get the same. We are in uh, coast to coast. We're as far west as Beverly Hills to New York and everywhere in between. And we talk about our culture and values. You know, we have the same training programs across the company. We have the same standards, etc. But our culture and values uh, is the backbone of what we do. And I look at it this way. Um, we teach our people our culture and our values. We teach them how to think. And if they know how to think, they'll know what to do. And so Early in our earlier years, our culture and values, as we spread out of town, did not resonate as well as it did out of town as it does in town.
0: What why? What do you think that because
1: is? Because we uh, opened our restaurants with out of town people and so forth, and we uh, didn't really know how to transfer that culture and those values. We didn't. We brought people in. We thought if we hired an outside manager, then come in for eight to twelve weeks and train and and learn it. And it's just not that way. So
0: can you change twenty years of experience in ten weeks? No.
1: No. take usually takes six months to a year for an outside hire to really adapt and learn to our culture. So today, uh, we won't open a restaurant without a homegrown management team in that restaurant. And it's very important to inculcate that culture uh, into that new property, no matter where it is.
0: So restaurants are notorious for having a very high failure rate. Mm -hmm. You described the second restaurant you opened Mm -hmm. as... uh, you're you're prepping. You're in the empty building. Yeah. A police officer comes <laughs> right. in, and uh, he's just checking on the building. Mm-hmm. What are you doing mm-hmm. here? Oh, we're opening a new restaurant mm-hmm. here. And at that point, after you're already committed on the lease and you've already raised oh, all yeah. the money,
1: and we're under construction. Yeah. yeah uh,
0: hey, what's this neighborhood like? Is it safe? And he kind of surprised you with his answer, didn't he? Right. There, there's been some some trouble, wasn't there? A, a, yeah. So a...
1: it was seven o'clock at night. You know the construction team's gone. I'm just. It's a beautiful, clear night, and I'm talking to this police officer. And I look across. You know, a couple blocks down the way, I see a lady dressed provocatively walking down the street, and I said to him, A I "Lady
0: said, in the evening."
1: Yes, in the evening, early evening, <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, is "She a prostitute?" And he goes, "Oh yeah. There's a bunch of them down there by there's some hotels down there." And I said, well, is this a safe area? She, you know, yeah, it is. But, you know, we had someone got killed. I was just uh, seen uh, two nights ago across the street here. There's blood everywhere. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my goodness, what have I done?
0: So and but meanwhile, that restaurant was around for what, seven years? Yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, when a new restaurant launches, Uh that's that's a um, uh, the triumph of optimism over rationality, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Most restaurants don't even last two years do right they? right so know. how do you how do you manage that those challenging odds and continue to open restaurant after restaurant
1: well that particular restaurant I say made enough to feed a cat uh, <laughs> for seven years but uh, anyways and that was a mistake and we've made mistakes make lots of mistakes and I look at it as a batting average um, right. I look at every five restaurants I open one is not going to do very well or might even close the other Three are what I call singles, doubles, or triples. And then and, and the other one, uh, the fifth one, is a home run out right. of the park. And so you average them all together, I get five good ones. So we know <laughs> we're going to get mistakes. But we, we've we gotten better at our craft along the way. And, you know, I go back to um, when the high failure rate in the restaurant business to me is a little bit of a mis- misnomer. Simply put, uh, a lot of people want to be in the restaurant business. And, they, and it's got a very relatively low barrier to entry as far as cash Still goes.
0: Still a couple hundred grand to open any restaurant, For your right? first
1: one, maybe you can get away with that. Yeah. You know, we spend millions of dollars today to open our restaurants, but certainly my first one was 400000 to put it mm-hmm. that way. But uh, I always say, people don't walk around a grocery store pushing a grocery cart saying, I want to be a grocer. Right. But they do go to restaurants and say, I want to be in a I restaurant could do business. I right. how, how hard is this? And so, if you, th- if you take out the people that maybe really shouldn't be in the restaurant business out of that equation, the success rate's a little bit higher, but because mm-hmm. of that... Um, it, it creates a lot of failure rate.
0: So assume you have access to plentiful capital, mm-hmm. especially your shop. You have mm-hmm. a good track record for 25 years. Mm-hmm. What's the most challenging thing about launching a new restaurant? Is it the location? Is it the theme? Is it the food? What, what's the biggest challenge?
1: Well, you already took my first challenge out of the picture. That's capital access to plentiful capital. Uh, that's never been the case. It's, it's a lot of capital.
0: And, mm. and you write in the book how mm. challenging mm. it was to mm-hmm. constantly come up with yeah. every restaurant is four, five, six yeah. hundred yeah. twenty-five years ago. Not, yeah. not now. Right. That's today. That's two million dollars. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. So, and if you're in New York, it's five million. Ah, uh, we spent eleven million to open New York. Really, yeah. that's a lot of money. Exactly. Was it worth it? Very much so.
0: And, and I'm assuming Beverly Hills isn't cheap either. No, nope, that
1: was our second most expensive. Okay. Ones, so. We're, we're, so that raises
0: the question. You have a, a lot of restaurants in Ohio and uh-huh. Columbus. Uh-huh. I would imagine that's much less expensive. And if you could mm-hmm. attract as much of a crowd, are, mm-hmm. are those restaurants more profitable or are they not capable of doing the volume of a
1: New York or LA sort uh, both, of place. Both. Both. I mean it's 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 a uh when we talk about return on investment it's about volume and uh mm-hmm. you know capital invested. So it, yes, there's less capital invested but the lower the volume. So you might have the same return on investment as we have out right. somewhere else.
0: So what are the other mistakes hmm. that that restaurateurs make? I have to assume being undercapitalized. How much time do you have, Barry? We uh, we'll <laughs> take a break for dinner and we'll finish by midnight. Um I, I undercapitalization I've uh-huh. heard from other yeah. restaurateurs. Yeah. What what else is a, a, an issue? Well,
1: uh obviously by the book yes is the answer what's the question is all about your values and your uh, beliefs and your philosophies I think are very important. A lot of people start out they don't even have any values written down or any mission or anything. Don't even understand that. So that's that's first and foremost in my book. Uh understanding brand brand development, restaurant brand development, mm-hmm. you know. Uh you know, I'm going to have a barbecue restaurant that's uh, super healthy. Also, I well, mean, which is it? You're right. You, you can't have everything. Has to be <laughs> congruent all the way across the brand. So, and even restaurant branding itself has taken me years to really understand and 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 maybe get a little good
0: at. Now, here's my naivete as mm-hmm. a foodie here in New York. If the food is really good, mm-hmm. you really have to go out of your way to mess that up. Am, mm-hmm. am I wrong? Once you get to wow, this food is great. Mm-hmm. It, is that sufficient, or does that not get it
1: done? Well, that's just—I think—one leg of the stool. You what, know, what are the other legs? Well, certainly service, and you could debate whether food or service is more important. Or there's different studies on both. I think they're about equal. To really? I'm surprised
0: uh, to hear that. Yeah. Um, you it, remember bad service, right. But you don't. You know, I can't. I could tell you about a million spectacular right. meals, but I—I I don't recall ever saying this waiter was. Right. So, usually, they're unobtrusive. And when the service is really, really good, you almost don't notice it. Right. Unless you're in the industry. mm -hmm. And then you can't help but notice it.
1: You're not going to go to a place that's got great food, even though the service is lousy. Sometimes you have a bad experience. Probably right. But also you're not going to go to a place with great service and lousy food. Correct. Correct. So that's why I say, hence, I think they're both equally important. Then uh, comes the ambiance, which is a lot of that is the... unobtrusive things that you may not even necessarily realize whether you like or don't like, you know, you you might, yeah, right. You might sit in a restaurant and say, I just don't really like this place. And you may not know why exactly, but maybe the lighting's not right or the music's not right. All those intangibles to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. And then uh, marketing, you know, um, you can't really have a successful restaurant unless you also know how to market yourself. Because if you're you don't have a great location and people need to find you. So you have to spend a lot of time and energy tuning your horn to a certain extent and marketing yourself. So it's really, those are the four legs of the stool in my book.
0: So let's talk about another intangible. You mentioned the music and the lighting. I have some favorite places my wife refuses to go to on weekends because it's so crowded and it's so loud. It's not relaxing. Mm-hmm. You want to go on a Thursday or Sunday, I'm happy to. Mm-hmm. But Friday and Saturday night, it's a zoo. Mm-hmm. Is that an issue you have to deal with, or is that just my...
1: Uh, It certainly is. You know, uh, noise and sound is certainly an issue. We've had to add soundproofing to restaurants along the way. But, uh, you know... First of all, a little it, energy's
0: got to be great, right. right?
1: Oh, I, I, I say people go out to be uh, stimulated, not to sedated. Right. So, uh, in a restaurateur's nightmare, is an empty, quiet dining room. So, sure. we don't want those. So, uh, think about where we're coming from. We, we want loud, we want that energy. Energy breeds energy. You mm-hmm. know, the, the staff is happier, the guests are happier, everybody's excited. Um, but you have to be able to talk at the same time, you have to be able to converse and, and enjoy yourself.
0: That, that's pretty reasonable.
1: We have been speaking to Cameron Mitchell. He
0: is the founder and CEO of the Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things food-related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at... MIB podcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloomberg dot com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Cameron. Thank you so much for doing this. I am a uh, a foodie, and I- I've gone out to. Michelin star restaurants all over the world. I'm very happy trolling my way through Chinatown finding random Malaysian restaurants or Shanghai soupy buns or someone, someone on uh, Lynette Lopez from Business Insider on Twitter mentioned that uh, there's this restaurant in Flushing called Galaxy Dumpling House. She goes, oh, they're opening a new location. They're testing out a franchise concept and I said to her, "We, you know how some people do a pub crawl—they go to a bunch uh-huh. of bars. We did a dumpling crawl through Queen through my birthday a year ago, through Flushing, Queens. We went to like a dozen. Sounds dumpling like a great places. time to me. I, I got home. I I didn't eat for two days. It was just that's a lot of dumpling." Uh, Galaxy Dumpling has like a hundred different dumplings on the menu. It's Mm. just, and they're all you know, individual homemade. So I was intrigued. But when I saw your book and I saw your your history, um, I was kind of intrigued by it. Um, I'm fascinated by the idea of taking a successful restaurant concept and. Expanding it elsewhere, be it franchise or or your mm-hmm, own mm-hmm. Uh, approach. And every now and then, I'll see a uh, a little restaurant and say, "There's this little place not too far from where I live called Cactus Cafe. It's just really good, simple Mexican food and grilled Peruvian chicken in in a room smaller than we're sitting in right now. And I was saying, every time I see this place, I'm they could open a hundred of these mm-hmm. if they were wanted to." The the stuff is, it's not, there's a million of these little places like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is different, it's unique. I'm shocked nobody ever did that. So I have to ask you, when you come up with a concept that's successful,
1: mm-hmm.
0: are some of these successfuls just not translatable? It's just lightning in a bottle and it's that one location? And are, are you ever surprised when something that you thought, well, this is pretty good, but not spectacular, and then it has legs and it, it keeps going? How do you? How does that process go from, hey, this is a pretty good restaurant idea? Now there are a hundred of them.
1: Well, it's kind of a multi-pronged question. I think you know, not every restaurant operator wants to build multiple restaurants. Mm-hmm. Not every you know, uh, not every restaurant operator wants to live on an airplane and travel all the time like right. we do. So um i personally wanted to build a national brand i wanted to do that so we we kind of looked for it and we worked it and building a national restaurant brand uh takes a lot of time and effort years and years of time and refinement of that brand so it's not as simple as just replicating it and you're right there is uh there's certain regionalities to the country you know barbecue doesn't necessarily travel all over the country it's just a different especially different types of barbecue so there, just a lot goes into it. And I think just having a individual, successful one restaurant doesn't always mean it's translatable to build across the country or across the town. So
0: now, what is the Rusty Bucket?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, it, what what is that?
1: It's a corner, 4,500-square-foot, uh, 140-seat uh, corner neighborhood tavern concept. Mm-hmm. It's uh, We put it in affluent suburbs. It's a great place. We, we really say it kind of uh, 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 is the default vote. You know, you've got kids. You want to go out to dinner. Uh, you know, you know where will the kids be happy? Where will Mom and Dad be happy? And that's where we're really so basically burger, be- bed- bedroom yeah, wings. pastas, pizzas, that sort of thing, but good food from scratch, mm-hmm. great environment. you know uh, the bar is right in the middle of it. You can have people drinking at the bar and still walking with your kids and feel very comfortable and it's mm-hmm. that kind of place. So it's really in those affluent suburbs. We're in six states uh, right now around the country,
0: so uh, a chain like that twenty three twenty. Mm-hmm. 20- mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. How large can that get? Is that something you would want to expand to 200 restaurants? Or is it you just have to find the right place where it's a good fit? Well,
1: we're still working on that. You know, casual dining itself uh, is um, uh, probably one of the more challenged parts of the restaurant business. Uh Uh, Fine dining where Ocean Prime brand lies is – Doing very well. We all know uh, fast casual is doing very well. It's it's uh, um, it become so competitive. Yeah, right. that's the thing. It's saturated, you right? Know? And I've never wanted to get into that fast casual business because of that. Where, so, where
0: do you draw the line on fast casual above fat? Like,
1: um, well, you know, it's Chipotle. Came okay. Off. You know, everybody fast everybody casual. wanted to do the Chipotle delivery right. model, and and everybody wanted the success of Chipotle, uh, and. You know, you've had a lot of failures along the way with that too, and and mm-hmm. but you have everybody and their brother throwing money at it, and trying to get into it. Right, and I've just ref- uh, tried not to do that. Didn't want to do that. Didn't what about all the
0: space. burger chains that are yeah. coming out to challenge McDonald's? Yeah. Some of which have really taken off very quickly. Sure,
1: I mean Shake Shack is obviously Everywhere. a good example. Five Guys Burgers another good example. Um, I uh, one this at one point I had. Um, our vice president of operations leave us because he wanted to do a burger joint and, and start the burger craze. And I didn't want to get involved with it. I and mean, that's a very competitive to, space right, right. And,
0: and you have all the legacy McDonald's, mm-hmm, Burger King, mm-hmm, Wendy's, mm-hmm. um, go down the list, Arby's, yep. uh, Slimmer margins, Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a tough business I would imagine.
1: Yeah. It's just something I prefer not to get into.
0: So, uh, fast casual is Chipotle and yeah. and higher. Yeah, you're you're not in the fast casual. Yeah, that's space. L- that we
1: call that as limited service or counter service, etc. I'm we're in a full service space, mm-hmm. and the full service space is the casual brands like a Rusty Bucket. You know, you can put Applebee's and Chili's in there if you want. but There's others. Then there's upscale casual, and uh, then there's the fine dining. Are, are, so we play in all three of those those segments. Are
0: there any upscale casual restaurants that have Managed to build more than just a, a local footprint?
1: Well, sure. The uh, the national standard bearer, gold standard, is Houston's. Uh, oh, the restaurants, sure. The, Very that's good. a polished, casual segment. Yes. You know, those are who really the rest of us aspire to be. Cheesecake Factory is in that, in that okay. genre. You know, not as good as Houston's, but on that genre. Food there is, yeah. To- is yeah. respectable. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's it's the A huge menu. Huge menu. Right. It's a little bit, it's a different approach than right. Houston's, but... Along those lines, and, and, and those are the, you know, then there's the fine dining brands like Ocean Prime mm-hmm. that um, is in the major markets across the country.
0: So uh, New York passed some rule, uh, New York City, about if you have more than five restaurants mm-hmm. with the same name in New York, mm-hmm. there were certain disclosure requirements. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the Houston's and some other similar chains mm-hmm. in New York mm-hmm. basically, well, we'll just change a, a couple of exactly. names. and. Thanks well, for the silly rule.
1: Yeah. Um, there's the national rule, too, that uh, over 20 units, uh, you have to label all your menu items for the calorie counts right. and all that. And I think then, that's what the New York issue yeah. was as and, well. And, you know, that's... Um, the jury's still out on really how that's affecting restaurants. I was talking to a CEO of another restaurant company that, that has done that, and and it's just shifted the way people order. It hasn't really affected their business volume. It it j- so what does it
0: do? It affects
1: the dessert order. Yeah, when they see lobster, mashed potatoes, or gratin at twenty one hundred calories, they're ordering uh, something else, but they're still ordering. So it hasn't right. really. Uh, and and uh, you know. Where you believe on that? I believe in freedom of choice, and you know people can do what they want. But <laughs> the
0: the problem is once you put the calories down, you're nudging people in one direction or another. Correct or and, That's uh, what the law is for, is what I guess. About, um, so. Let's talk about tipping. Mm-hmm. I, I that's a big issue. Mm-hmm. Some people. Mm-hmm. I was just in Iceland, where there is no tipping on the entire island, mm-hmm. and when they told us that, I was kind of shocked. Although everything is kind of expensive there, so it's obviously mm-hmm. no free lunch. It's built in. That said, it was kind of nice not having to worry about it, to Mm -hmm. think about it. Where do you land on the, should we have tipped servers, or should we just pay them a salary and build that into the price?
1: Well, I I definitely uh, differ on that than our friend Danny Meyer, who's leading the charge on the no tipping uh, program. And I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to bridge that gap and the disparity between front of the house uh, associates and back of the house associates. And people
0: and people in the the dishwashers, the busboy, people in the back, they're right. they're not making a whole lot of money compared to the bartenders, waiters, hosts, and hostesses. Yeah,
1: and I understand that. But uh, and again, the jury's still out on whether that's really working or taking hold in uh, his company. He's doing it, and he's making that decision and trying to change the way we do business. And there's a lot of pushback. Um, you know, I'm trying to reserve judgment on that. Uh, I'm trying to keep an open mind, but. I don't uh, really uh, like that personally. I like the tip. I like gratuity. I like uh, uh, great servers make more money than not so great servers. A little incentive, uh, yeah. Never hurts, I think right? it's great. And now we, on the other hand, uh, tip of the hat to Danny. I mean, we're trying to take care of our back of the house associates more, and 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 still able to do that, and giving them raises and paying them more along the way. Um, But, you know, not everybody's cut out to be in the front of the house. Not everybody's cut out to be in the back of the house. And not everybody uh, uh, makes the same amount of money across America. So it it is what it is to a certain extent. And I do uh, personally like to tip, and I think it's uh, uh, one of the great hallmarks of hospitality. So one of the
0: questions we didn't get to during the broadcast portion was the different regions in the country. Um, You mentioned Beverly Hills. What about uh, further up the West Coast? San Francisco, mm-hmm, Portland, mm-hmm, Seattle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you in in those locales, or are you interested in going there?
1: Well, uh, they're tougher markets to do business in uh, because of the regulatory requirements and mm-hmm. so forth. But, and we had a deal in, in actually Seattle, and we uh, passed on that deal because of that. Really. Uh, however, uh, we're working on a project currently in San Diego, and we're currently looking up in Northern California. So. Um, And there's lots of great successful restaurants in California. Portland
0: is a fantastic food city, Yeah, really good food city, uh although people have told me that it's very difficult to move the needle if you need any sort of Mm -hmm. local government waiver or approval. It's a challenge to get that done.
1: I can imagine. And there's a lot of independents. There's a huge independent dining scene in Portland, too. Sure. that's probably we might not be top of our list in terms of national development.
0: So you started in Ohio. Mm-hmm. What about places like uh, Chicago mm-hmm. and Indianapolis mm-hmm. and other major cities in in the
1: sure. industrial Midwest? Yeah, sure. We're in uh, we you know we started building outside of Columbus in the Midwest. So we're in Chicago. We're in uh, Detroit, Indianapolis, Columbus. Um, natural movement from there is Florida. You know, we have a lot of those. Uh, right. Midwestern are you where are you in? Are you in Florida yet? Yeah, we're in Naples, uh, Tampa, and Orlando, and mm-hmm. we're looking now uh, on the East Coast, uh, the Boca, North Miami, Palm Beach area,
0: and which which concepts do you
1: want? to Ocean bring? Prime. That's our. Oh, really? Brand. So you want to go high up, high mm-hmm.
0: ends mm-hmm. in all those places? Correct. Correct. Huh. Yeah. Very very interesting. Yeah,
1: Ocean Prime is the brand we're building for the time being. Um, you know, we're you know. We may build more rusty buckets. Like I said, we have two concepts within our, our independent group that uh, we're looking to maybe take outside. So
0: I have to ask you a naming question, mm-hmm. a branding question. Sure. Ocean Prime, uh-huh. it sounds very high end. You, uh-huh. you, fresh seafood, yep. prime steak, sounds exactly. great. Rusty Bucket isn't a name that comes mm-hmm. to mind mm-hmm. about a restaurant. Mm-hmm. What What's the concept? Well, like the branding concept? Yeah, I mean. it's
1: casual. dining. That name kind of came out as a fluke. And, um, and it we, we has it legs? And it took off and it has legs. But yeah, when we go to new markets, people are like, what is that? And we have to explain a little bit more. And restaurant naming itself is very challenging because that name, you want to reflect on what that brand is. You would Just think, like Ocean right? Prime, exactly. So
0: how does Rusty...
1: Yeah, but there are uh, there are examples to that that you know have broken right. that mold to a certain extent. So It's, to me, it's easier or not. Really.
0: Uh-huh. To me, I hear rusty Bucket. and I'm like, do I want a rusty bucket <laughs> of food? It's, it's so counterintuitive, but I know that's been a very successful yeah. chain for yeah. you guys. Yeah. So whatever that quirkiness is, it mm-hmm. seems to catch it people's ear. takes a little ear. more work, and
1: there's other examples out but, there. Too.
0: But yeah. once people, once it's in the neighborhood, people kind of, yeah. right. it, it stays with them, and it's like, oh, the rusty yeah. bucket. Yeah. It's yeah. a very different... Mm-hmm. Um, it's not McDonald's clearly, and it's not Ocean Prime, um, but it seems to have found a sweet spot right in the middle.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what you get is people say, well, "Let's just go to the bucket." It's getting shortened. It's just the bucket. The bucket. <laughs> yeah, we're going to the bucket. So
0: <laughs> that, that's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So we went over tips, um, and we went over branding. Uh, I have to just a little bit just just put a toe into the con restaurant concept creation, Mm because you describe, in the book, you describe the process, but it's very generic. You don't get into the specifics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, for my own curiosity, how do you come up with a brand new concept Mm -hmm. that's different from Mm -hmm. are you going to other restaurants, is it brainstorming? How do you come up with, oh, this is a new idea. Mm -hmm. Let's test it out, and now it's in 50 cities. How Mm -hmm. how does that happen?
1: Mm Uh, well, I'm not sure there's really a lot of new ideas out there. It's just, uh, your version, your artistic impression of someone else's new idea.
0: And the 20 people painting the,
1: the fields exactly, out the window. Exactly. So I think, you know, in every restaurant we've done kind of has a story to it. You know, mm-hmm. um, we have a restaurant called the barn at Rocky Fork Creek and it was an old barbecue restaurant and, um, our guys said, they called us and said, hey, we had gone out of business. Would we like to put a restaurant there? And, and uh, I said, no, we don't want to. You know, this barbecue, replace this bar. No, we don't want to do it. And I remembered, uh, as I was saying that, uh, one the one of the top grocery restaurants in the country is called the Angus Barn in North Carolina. And it's the top restaurant in North Carolina. And I said, boy, this barn is perfect for that concept. It could be perfect right And what here. is the concept of the Angus it's Barn? A, it's a uh upscale casual steakhouse kind of a a little little bit of a ralph Lauren feel it's not uh fine dining it's not all white tablecloth but it's it's approachable and um somewhere good somewhere between
0: fast casual and fine dining
1: well somewhere between fine dining and upscale casual it's just a little bit up there but um and and we did it. We have another restaurant site uh, in our short north of Columbus that uh, this location became available, and this is back when the gastropub craze was going on sure. across the country. And and so we said, you know, I called the landlord up. He said, uh, what are you going to put here? I said, I don't know, but I'd like the site. But, Trust but there'll me.
0: be fried chicken
1: with street tracha sauce on it, and you're set. Exactly. In fact, I was just there last night. um you know, it just depends. Now, Ocean Prime, you know, we we wanted to build a high-end steak and seafood restaurant, and we didn't want to necessarily build a steakhouse. And so that's how that, it was. original name was Mitchell's Ocean Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we sold to Ruth Chris, I sold the name Mitchell's specifically. So we still had Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, but it was Mitchell's Fish Market, and I couldn't call Mitchell's Ocean Club. So that's when we rebranded and came up with Ocean Prime, and we felt it fit the uh, the the, uh, the concept perfectly.
0: I know I only have you for a certain amount of time, so let's jump to some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, nobody's gesturing at me yet, but sometimes they'll wave and say we have, uh, you know, I, I get the bring bring the plane in to the carrier. Um Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background, although after the book, I don't know if there's a whole lot of stuff. Yeah,
1: uh, that's a tough question because I am an open book, Yeah, and it talks about that, and yes is the answer. What's the question? Uh, I would say if what people really don't know about me is uh, I'm still an entrepreneur. I'm still chicken little. I'm still scared every day, and uh, uh, even with the national success we've had, uh, I still wake up every morning, check our numbers, and see how we're doing, and, and 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 I'm nervous all the time.
0: So that that's a surprising answer. You you mentioned the fourth quarter for Cameron Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Really, at this point, I should ask you, what what are your plans for the fourth quarter?
1: Well, two things. One, uh, and I'm working on this currently, is to move to truly a chairman's role within mm-hmm. the company, uh, which is chief strategy officer, if you will. Uh, And then really uh, chief steward of the company and and legacy and stewardship of the organization. And really about uh, part and partial why we wrote the book, Guess Is the Answer? What's the question? is to share that knowledge and to tell that story. Uh, We uh, were the lead donor. I'm opening and sharing the fundraising efforts to build a new 80,000-square-foot hospitality management school in Columbus at Columbus State College. Um, we are opening the Bud Dairy Food Hall, which is, uh, takes 10, uh, restaurateurs, young buddy restaurateurs will be in this space. And our goal is to help them. We run the bars and we run the food hall. We curated these restaurants and our goal is to help take these restaurateurs to bricks and mortar, uh, restaurants along the way. Um, just all about the young leaders in our company, working with them and helping build their careers, et cetera.
0: Tell us about some of your early mentors, who helped guide your career?
1: Yeah. Um, I didn't have really uh, a lot of early mentors and who I talked with. I believe people could have mentors uh, that they don't even necessarily know. Uh, Rich Melman out of Chicago, list to entertaining restaurants was certainly one of mine. Norm Brinker from Chili's, uh, his book, and he's been inspirational to me. Dave Thomas from Wendy's, his story. Um, There's lots of those. uh, Herb Keller, CEO of Southwest Airlines, I think their story and how he ran a business is incredible. So um, those are some of the people I looked up to as I was coming up the ladder.
0: You, You mentioned a few books. What are some of your favorite books?
1: Uh, My all-time great uh, favorite book is Good to Great, Jim Collins. I'm a Jim Collins disciple. I think he was instrumental, and that book was instrumental in helping turn our company around and and ultimately resulted in the sale of the fish market. It's been instrumental in the building of the Ocean Prime brand itself. And um, so I I love all the management books, Pat Lencion. uh, I've read every single, Spencer Stewart, Who Moved My Cheese, One Minute Manager, all those Leadership books I've read, too. I find those very valuable. So,
0: And you you mentioned in your book, um, The Customer Comes Second. Any other books from your book you want to bring up or reference?
1: Uh, well, The Customer Comes Second was from Hal Rosenbluth that, right. that was inspirational in helping me write the company culture and values. Uh, um, I think uh, yes is the answer. What's the question? I think we'll be, uh, hopefully, people uh, find a lot us. of value. Yeah.
0: Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
1: Um, I like to think I've never totally failed. I've been knocked down many, many, many times. And, um, the biggest, uh, but I would think failure in my experience was we've had restaurants fail, et cetera. I've made some mistakes there. Uh, but really after 2008, we just sold, you know, two thirds of our business for $92 million and, I, in my hubris, and my ego, I ran out and signed a bunch more leases. I was going to – another $20-plus in development. And I was going to rebuild the EBITDA that we sold, and uh, it took 10 years to build. I was going to rebuild it in three years. And, and then the great crash happened in 2008, <laughs> and these restaurants didn't perform well. And I almost ran, ran the company off a cliff in 2009. It took some really lousy entrepreneuring. To get us into that mess, Uh, it took some really hard work and great entrepreneurial to get us out of that mess.
0: So if a a young millennial or a college grad came Mm -hmm. to you and said they were interested in going into the restaurant Mm -hmm. business, Mm -hmm. what sort of advice would you give them?
1: First and foremost, uh, anybody starting a business, I would say, uh, get some experience. You know, we have a lot of these young 18, 19, 20-year-olds, 21, 22, that want to just graduate from college, start their business, and make a bazillion dollars, and I think people need to get experience first, uh, first and foremost, and work for some successful companies and understand what it takes to be successful. Uh, Secondly, uh, they better think about their values and their culture and what they stand for and get those identified right away. And thirdly, uh, you have to be willing to uh, work your tail off and be knocked down and get right back up. And entrepreneurial has been one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life, if not the toughest thing.
0: And our final question, what do you know about the restaurant industry today? You wish you knew 25 years ago. When you were first launching? Oh,
1: sure. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing I've learned really is the power of branding uh, and how to develop restaurant brands and how important that is and that the brand, all the brand touch points and the brand DNA uh, is congruent with everything across that brand. So that took us a long time to learn and it, and it takes years to really refine a brand and really to create a successful brand. It doesn't happen overnight.
0: Huh. Quite Quite interesting. We have been speaking with Cameron Mitchell. He is the founder and chairman of the Cameron Mitchell Restaurant Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can find any of our other 227 prior podcasts over the past four years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure and write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Medina Parwana is our producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.